Looking for inspiration to go on extraordinary journeys? UB Cool Talks features the inspiring stories of Red Bull athletes, Olympic champions, National Geographic explorers, and others that will make you want to live your life to the fullest. What are you waiting for? Start listening today. UB Cool Talks is the podcast arm from ubicool.com, the fastest growing online adventure booking platform offering over 70 destinations through partnerships with over 650 companies. In today's UB Cool Talk, we are chatting with Jonathan Schubert, who shares his story about his extremely challenging world record attempt cycling the grueling 1,200 km from Muscat to Salala within less than 48 hours. Get ready to be inspired. Are you ready for an adventure? We thought so. We present to you the first online adventure platform in the world. You be cool. Now you can book desert camping, hiking or diving at the click of a button. If you need a cool adventure, think you be cool. For more information, check ub-cool.com. Thank you all, thank you all for coming. Um, First and foremost, through and through, I am a cyclist. It's in my blood. I've grown, grown up with it. Um, I've achieved a lot of things in my cycling career. I've been a British champion uh, over long distances, and I've got British records. Um, it's something I know I'm capable of. How? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So I, I am a cyclist. That's what I do. Um, and I didn't really have any more challenges in me. And the reason this whole thing came about was because I'm fascinated by maps, I'm fascinated by geography, I, I cycle around the world once, um, and I'm always looking at what's going on. I, I think when I first came here, I contemplated how to cycle back to the UK from Oman. I'd already, already cycled here through Iran, through Europe, and, uh, through the Middle East that way. I thought, okay, I'd love to go back through Yemen, fascinated by Yemen and these countries. And it, the more I look at these places, the more it saddens me what's going on. Um, Iraq, Syria, Yemen, for example. And, and it was upsetting me so much, I thought, what can someone like me, an ordinary person like me, possibly do to make anything better in the world? And I thought, well, I have this strange talent for riding a bike for a very long distance. And, and something that's stuck in my mind since the age of about 14, um, I rode with a, a gentleman, I rode my bike with a gentleman whose father was a very, very good cyclist. He rode with the best cyclist, it's a man considered to be the best cyclist of all time, Eddie Merckx. And he told me that once upon a time, his father had stayed stationary in the house on some things called rollers. You have to balance your bike on them. And he pedaled for 30 hours nonstop to raise money for charity. And I thought, wow, that's amazing. People go and do 5K park runs and these sorts of things, and they do that to raise money for charity. But something like that, I think, captured my attention much more. Someone really putting themselves out there and really pushing the limits. And that always stuck in my mind. And I thought, what could I do that grabs people's attention? I live in this country. I know people who've cycled the length of it. So I came up with this idea. I thought, well, this, this is my bread and butter. This is what I do. Let's see how many people buy into this who would be interested in it. So it started as a very small seed, a very small idea. Um, and two people I should have, should have put a picture of. Of, but I don't really need to because they are here tonight. Um, Medina has already spoken to you, and Heather. Um, I, I knew Medina 
from about a year prior to doing this, and it just in conversation, she heard what I was what I was intending to do, and said, "Well, this is very exciting. She's a woman who's passionate about adventure and exploring." And she said, "Sort of stay in touch, and we'll you know if we can help you in any way." And I'm not really quite sure how it happened, but it sort of snowballed, and, and you be cool um, changed the face of this idea I had, and they gave me so much support. Um, they were really pushing me and giving me sort of direction and guidance, things, aspects to this that things that I couldn't have done myself. So it started to build momentum and it all began just after July in the summer. So how, did I, how do I make this a world record? People had cycled it, I contacted uh, Guinness World Records. They take a long time to get back to you, about three months to get back to you. So in the meantime, I'm preparing. When they did get back to me, they said, oh, we have so many of these requests for place-to-place -place records. Um, we're not going to consider this one because we, we only really do cross-continents um, or cross-country journeys. And to get in correspondence with them is very difficult. I'd have to wait another three months. So I thought, well, who else can do this? And I knew of this um, big governing body called the Ultramarathon Cycling Association that, that oversee a lot of uh, record attempts and um, they're much more specific to cycling. And I contacted them and they were brilliant. They got straight back to me. We talked about this. They said, is there, is there a way to make this a cross-country journey? Can we go from um, the border of the UAE down to Yemen? And we talked about logistics and possibilities. And um, in the end, they said, for the reasons I've given, you know, getting close to the Yemeni border is difficult. The road from the UAE is a bit, a bit dangerous. They said, okay, we will consider this to be a cross-country record. You have to suggest two locations. Um, and we'll sort of... Uh, decide whether we like it or not for your start and finish. So we, talking to a lot of people, we decided that the oldest part of Muscat is old Muscat, and, and there is the beautiful Al Alam Palace. Um, and we can take the journey from there to the Sultan's Palace in Salalah. So all these ideas started to come together. I had no idea at the time what the logistics were going to be like for this, how much there was going to to do to get this ready, even um, all the, the record stuff, there are so many rules. We'll talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Go to the next slide. So yeah, this is a place I took a picture the other day, a nice 3D map. Most of Oman was, was going to be flat. Um, I looked at the journey, about 12-1300 kilometers, and you're going through a lot of desert, but then you can see right there at Salara at the end, I'm going to have to cross the Dofar Mountains. Um, and I'm starting to think at this point about temperatures, the time of year I want to do it. I did consider Christmas, I'm a, I'm a school teacher, so I had to go really, I can't take time off work, I have to go on my school holidays. Um, and with the amount we had to do to prepare, February seemed like the best shot, the beginning of our school half term. But I would have to take into consideration how I was going to deal with the temperatures and what the temperatures were going to be at this time of year, um, as well as other factors dust, sandstorms, things that I've not contended with um, in Europe. Okay, so um, this is the bit that very few people know much about. This is the preparation. And to start with is the training. I've said to a lot of people that I feel like people wouldn't have listened to me. People, if, if an, an average Joe off the street walks up to you and says, oh, I'm going to cycle, set a world record, cycle 13, 1200 kilometers in two days. They wouldn't listen. But I had a pedigree. I had, I've done things in the past. I've, I've cycled nearly 850 kilometers in a day when I won the British 24-hour championship. Um, and I've done lots of things like this. So immediately people place some faith in you. 
And oh, John can do it. John can do it. It's, it's, it won't be a problem for him. But you still, you can't just turn up and have not done any training. And I know how to prepare for these sorts of things. And I know you don't have to be on your bicycle for an entire day to train for this, to, to build up the ability to endure for long periods of time like that. You don't really need to train any longer than probably about eight hours. Um, you're building up the right kind of muscle fibers, you're building up the enzymes that are needed to break down your fat reserves and, and all the things that are associated with, um, with long distance. So what I would do, I would use my weekends to do long rides. I'd do a long ride on Friday and I'd double them up back to back. So I'd finish late in the evening and then when I wake up in the morning, I'd go out again and do another six hours. And if you, if you back them onto one another like that, that's, that's a good way to build endurance. I don't have time to do that during the week, so I'm using my weekends to build that, and then during the week I'm doing some more high intensity work. It probably only lasts about an hour just to make sure my, my general level of fitness stays high. Um, this absorbed my life. I had to be doing this for about six weeks. Um, some of that time I was visiting my family in the UK, so I was going out in freezing cold temperatures, and over New Year's, Christmas, I'd have to leave the family and I'd be out cycling all day, every hour of daylight, and come home again. It was quite exhausting. And even when I was here, I didn't see my friends anymore. I became a complete um, introvert, I suppose. Uh, I was disconnected from everyone. This had begun to absorb my life, even, even two months or more before the actual record attempt. Um, I was putting an awful lot of time into it, but I knew as I got closer to the event, I could start tapering. This would, would stay in my legs, and maybe two weeks before, um, I could really back off and not do much and rest and let the effects of the training kick in. There were a few races I had before that. Um, I won a few races here in Oman, some longer distance races, and they were, they were often a good test just to see where my level of fitness was. The fact I could ride a 100 mile race and still hit my, my highest power numbers at the end of the race and, and ride away from the field was a good sign that I was, I was in top shape. And I knew, actually, when I was preparing for it, I hadn't really been much fitter than this in the past. So that was, that was very promising. Whilst I was training, I did notice that after about eight hours, sometimes I was really suffering with the dust inhalation. Um, and it, it was quite difficult to breathe when I got back in the car, wherever I'd driven out to. Um, and so while my friends were sitting at home on a Thursday night watching Netflix or going out drinking or whatever they were doing, I was, I was in villages eating biryanis with all sorts of Indians in Pidgin Arabic and uh, exploring the country. And it was, it was exciting. It was a little bit, uh, a little bit lonely at times, but I, I, I did get to explore a lot of Oman and it's a different world at night. Um, yeah, so, you know, even the, the sponsors and the people who backed me, the support crew I had for the record, they know very little about this. They just got text messages from me saying everything's good, everything's fine, everything's coming along the way it should be. Um, and even I can, can forget about this part of it because it seems like a while ago now. But uh, yeah, you do have to put in the training and, and obviously I was doing that. So here, here's a few of the people, some nice smiley faces. Um, you've all seen Heather before in Medina. And we had to have, one of the rules was we had to have two race officials. Actually, if you go ahead of slides, <laughs> can you guess who that is? Um, this is Heather's despair at finding she's got to learn 42 pages of rules to, um, to train as a race official that she volunteered for, or been made to volunteer for. Um, 
we needed, we needed to have two race officials, two people to follow me as I did this to make sure they were recording where I was, distances, um, making sure I was adhering to all sorts of rules, making sure I wasn't getting any advantage or from other riders or drafting, drafting cars, getting the slipstream effect, uh, making sure that I had the appropriate lighting, making sure everything was safe. Um, the list goes on. There were many, many things for them to do. So, um, Heather and um, Randall, um, a chap who's involved in cycling here in Oman, both volunteered very kindly to take on this role. So they were going to come down to Salada in a capacity um, as race officials, not as, the, as the, the helpers. But that started to make me think, well, how many people am I going to need with me on this journey? I'm going to need people, if I want to go as quickly as possible, I'm going to need people to be feeding me, um, looking after me, um, getting food ready, and all my needs over 48 hours. I can't be thinking about that. I just need to ride the bike. Um, and so, we um, managed, with the wonderful connections that Medina had, to find some other amazing people who agreed to get behind this record attempt, who were also excited by the, the prospect, this idea of this crazy Englishman who wants to try and cycle from Muscat to Salala in another two days. And we had Husak come along, um, an outdoor adventure company here in Oman, and they kindly offered to um, provide a GMC truck for us and um, a driver who's a wonderful man, Suki, and we got to know him very well, and he was just absolutely brilliant. That was absolutely essential. We had three, three cars, three vehicles with us, and I asked my team when we finished, I said, do you think that was too many? Do we only need two? And they said, no, we need four. Um, there's so much that needs to be carried, and there's so much that different cars need to be going off and doing while one car is following you. Um, so they were, they were absolutely essential. You can see that on the picture here, we've got some of the signs that Heather managed to get made up uh, and put on the vehicles. These were, this was part of the rules. We had to have flashing lights on the roof of the car, and we had to have banners and warning signs on all the vehicles that were following me and were, were associated with me. And that was a, that was a huge task. It was another, another thing I had to do, and Heather took that off my hands and um, went and did that, and that, that saved me an awful lot of time, and I was very, very grateful. Heather, I don't know if you want to, you want to say anything about um, the preparation of what it took to train as a race official and, and sort of you were a deer in the headlights to start with because you had no idea what it meant, did you? Yeah, and I did feel slightly guilty because of how much there was for them to do. Um, Heather even, in that photo there, you can see she's even lent her car on the left for the record attempt. So she went above and beyond what she definitely, what she uh, had originally agreed to. <laughs> so um, with the record attempt, people just see two days worth of riding and they think that that's it. But most of what we did and this record that we set, it all happened before those two days. And I think that saying is very true. Fail to prepare, prepare to fail. And there was an awful lot to do. One of the things we, we, um, we wanted to try and do was to allow people to follow me throughout the journey. So we got one of these, where well, we looked into different options of, of how to track me. And for a lot of these um, long distance cycle races, there are things called spot trackers. And we decided to, to use one of those. Someone lent me one. Um, it would ping off up to the satellites and back to the website. That was the idea. Um, Kate was in charge of this. She far better with IT than I am. Absolutely brilliant. 
She's like, there, yeah, we can sort this out, we can do this. And uh, so that was the plan. So we, we found a way to track me throughout the record. That was another thing we had to think about. Um, and then, then there's the kick. Now, I, I, I'm talking to people who don't have the background in cycling that I do. And obviously, you want to show off the sponsors' logos, these people who are giving me so much support. And Medina said to me, oh, you can wear one of our t-shirts. I said, no, 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 Medina, in cycling, the clothing is so, so important. And she didn't really understand, but I had to explain. The clothing is more important than the bicycle. You are, on a bicycle, you are 80% as the rider, the, the, the body that hits the wind. And it's all about, on a bicycle, when you're traveling fast, it's all about cutting a hole through the wind, as, as a smaller hole as you possibly can. And the development of materials for this clothing has really progressed in the last few years. And the way that you attach air to the body in certain places, and you have laminar flow and turbulent flow, there's a real science to it. It's all, there's a lot of physics there. Um, and you have to understand that to save yourself a lot of energy. So I said, I need some special clothing. I need one of these skin suits. Um, she said, okay, all right, well, as long as you can get the logos on there, we'll do it. We'll, we'll, we'll get you a skin suit. So I searched around a lot of companies and um, absolutely delighted with the company who agreed to do this. They produced the skin suits for the British team in the Doha Cycling World Championships about 18 months ago. And they were specially designed for the heat. They never made them since, they never made them before. A lot of money, research and development went into these. And they agreed to use the same materials to build this suit for Oman. Because again, one of the things we knew was it was going to be hot. We're getting up to about 30 degrees Celsius. Um, one of my good friends, Imran Mughal, who I cycle around the world with, he's a graphic designer and he came up with a, a beautiful layout for all the sponsors' logos and a, a design for the skin suit that was mostly white. And we were, we were going backwards and forwards with this. And we eventually came up with exactly what we wanted. They said, yeah, we can make you this, we can get it, get it made in short turnarounds uh, within about five weeks, which is very fast. So, we were, uh, I, was, I said, let's go ahead with this, let's go ahead with this, uh, we're ready to go. I said, okay, we're going to go into production. And then Medina texted me and said, oh wait, we've got another sponsor. We need to get the, the, the media company's logo on there. Oh, and I was like to message them back. And they said, there's time to change it, there's time to change it. So we, um, one of the sponsors I haven't mentioned yet is, is Prismic Media. Um, and they came on board at the last minute and I'm really excited to see the final product, but they've been making... Um, a documentary, a 15-minute documentary about the record attempt. And from the clips I've seen, I was doing the voiceovers last week, it looks incredible. These guys have such an eye for everything they capture. Um, it looks, and the, you know, they were telling me, you captured everything, the pain on your face. I didn't realize there was that much pain on my face. The sunsets, the, uh, just the wind, the, the weather, everything I was going through. So we had them on board, and I think as part of the contract, they needed to have their logo on me. It's a cool looking logo, so I was very happy to put it on there. Um, and then we went to production, and I've got the skin suit hanging up here, and I'll show you it a bit in, a, in a minute, because it's not in quite the same state as when, when we started. It's been washed three times, so don't worry. <laughs> um, we, there's also another thing to help the wind move over, is the, uh, the aero helmet. It's not like a typical bicycle helmet, it's a teardrop shape. Um, and I've got one of these, and my Omani friends who had agreed to come along with us as well, Khalil and Talal, they took it away to their friends in one of the, the uh, spray shops up in Marbella. And they, they got it uh, in a nice white color, much more effective in the heat than the black I had that would have absorbed the, the heat. And it matched the skin suit. So I was, I was really happy with the kit and the way that was all 
coming together. So, time flies when you're having fun, or when you're super, super busy. Um, I would say I got very, very little sleep. It wasn't ideal. The week before leading up to it, there was so much to do. As much as people were helping me, um, I was obviously uh, required for every aspect, and people were always um, wanting things from me, and I had a lot of things to do. Um, but you can see a picture on the on the screen now of the day before the, the record attempt. I think I was a bit tired. Um, and I just received the skin suit. Someone had flown out from the UK with the kit on, and I'm, uh, I'm proudly modeling that for the, uh, the guys from Prismic Media, um, who'd, who'd come out to do a bit of um, filming the day before we started. Some last minute planning. Um, I put together schedules for the support crew. We were gonna, we were gonna break the record attempt into six hour shifts. Um, that was the reason we needed two race officials, because they're not allowed to go beyond 24 hours, they'll be too exhausted. So there were blocks where Heather would be one of the race officials for six hours, then she'd get to have a rest, and the Randall would take over. And the same went for um, the crews who were feeding me and doing all these other things. I provided maps um, in these packs, um, I provided a list of the different foods I wanted, um, I think we had phone numbers, we had all sorts of things uh, ready for everyone got hold of walkie-talkies, first aid kits, we were, we were going to stock the cars the day before, that was the plan. So we're just talking through all of this final logistics before we start. So here it is. This is what you came to hear about. This is the, the record attempt. This was the morning, the 11th of February. Uh, the plan was to start at 6am. Uh, Heather picked me up from my house at about 5. And I got food poisoning. <laughs> Um, I had terrible gastroenteritis. I was losing a lot of fluids. Not in my car. Not in your car. <laughs> <laughs> um, but very close, very close to the palace, <laughs> which <laughs> I was trying not to think about. But uh, when you when you're going to go out to the heat, one of the big concerns I had was um, losing too much water. So to start like this was was terrible. But the film crew had come out. You know, everyone was depending on me. People saying, "Oh, you can put it back." I didn't really feel like I could. There was a lot of pressure there. I, still, I was still confident I could do this. Mind over matter. Um, and a lot of friends had come down to see me off, even though it was early in the morning. We were driving down, I think Heather said, um, oh look, there's lots of cyclists cycling at this time of the morning. And I said to her, oh, they've all come to see me off. She, th she thought I was joking, but um, <laughs> I said, no, I'm not joking. They all, they all turned up with their cameras and, uh, to help me before I started, get my, uh, my bike together. So there was a nice crowd there. There was some, um, some people from the local media who come down as well. And uh, that was it, really. That was, that was the beginning. I was about to um, endeavor on two days of torture. <laughs> okay, so we, we, um, we started well. I was really happy. We didn't have any holds up, hold ups going through uh, Moscow. Heather's, Heather obviously works for Ubicore and her job part of this was um, being in charge of social media. So the first six hours, she had off from her duties as a race official. Randall was in charge of that. So I had uh, two cars with me. I had my Armani friends, and I had uh, the horsehat truck as well. And they were following me, recording everything. Um, we got to Fanja, probably about 90 minutes in, and I needed to stop again. I hadn't planned to stop for six hours. I wanted to go six hours straight through. Um, but my my stomach was gurgling and it was so uncomfortable and I probably lost about another, I had to stop and I lost another half a litre of water. 
Um, I did feel better after that temporarily. It wasn't. It wasn't great. Um, we we had some exciting small mountains to cross, um, and the film crew got a good good vi uh, some good video footage of me switching bikes. My my road bicycle is uh, has lower gears and it's better to climb the mountain. So I switched from the the time trial bike I was on, which is a much more aerodynamic position, and I've got bigger gears on there, to something I could um, I could climb the mountains with a little bit better. And they, they captured all that fast transition, the bike was handed over, I just hopped from one to the other over the mountains. And it was all quite exciting, out to a place called Sinal, which was probably 200 kilometers in. And then the desert, and I knew that the majority of this journey was going to be, was going to be desert. Um, and then the, the temperatures did start to, to really pick up. Um, so this, this is about 2.30 in the afternoon, uh, maybe 3 o'clock. So, at least eight hours after I started, and we've been told, I checked with the weather office before I started, they said the highest temperature you'll experience is about 27 degrees, and even that was hotter than I'd anticipated for. Um, we got the white colored clothing, I had a technique of putting ice cubes in tights down the back of my, my top, um, and they would melt on my back without uh, getting any burn, and that was really nice, I was being sprayed with um, uh, water, cool water and alcohol that was cooling me down. But the temperature was rising higher and higher and it went to 28 degrees and then it went to 29 and 30 and 31. Um, and I was still trying to work at a fairly high intensity. I was feeling feeling good to probably about six hours and then it, I didn't I didn't feel quite right. I thought, oh am I being am I being soft? Am I being weak? I didn't feel quite right. So I climbed off the bike and I said I need to lie down for a minute. Um, and they put me underneath one of the trucks in the shade. And then very quickly, things, things, very strange things started to happen to my body. And I felt, I lay down, and within a minute, there were pins and needles, very fast pins and needles, felt like electricity in, in my fingers and my toes. And it was spreading through my body. And then my limbs began to tighten, and, and all the muscles were tensing and locking out. I couldn't straighten my arms, my fingers became rigid, I couldn't bend my fingers in. There was tightness across my abdomen, which it just kept getting tighter and tighter and I didn't really know how it was going to end. And I was trying to convey this to everyone, I was trying to tell them I'm not feeling right. People were putting ice on me and wet towels and trying to massage me. And then it spread to my face and I lost the control of the muscles around my mouth. And to the people around me, um, to uh, Chris, one of the helpers, she flown down from Dubai for this. It, it looked to her like I was having a stroke because I'd lost, I'd lost this control of my mouth and I was slurring my speech. And I knew how serious it was and I was really surprised that I couldn't see any panic or any fear on anyone else's faces. Um, you hear stories of soldiers who are hiking and they literally just drop dead with heat stroke. And I knew, I knew this was the, the signs and the symptoms of heat stroke. Um, and it was, it was worrying. The feeling did start to come back into my limbs. And I think everyone did know how, how scary it was. They told me afterwards, but they were just trying to put on a, not trying to panic me, put on a brave face. Um, so I lay there and I thought, I can't, I, I really want to continue. I don't want to let anything slow me down. But this, this obviously is what's the best way to get over the situation. And, and as it started to abate and I was, I was being cooled, um, the feeling was coming back and I thought, right, I just need to wait for the pins and needles to go. Once, once the, these strange sensations have disappeared, I can continue. Um, that was what was going on in my head. And then I 
was on the ground for about an hour, hour and a quarter, and then I got off and I went again. Now, I would like Heather to talk to you about this because um, I was reading um, a lovely article she wrote just the other day, uh, her account through the eyes of one of the helpers of, of what happened here. And I think this was one of the most striking things she said, how, how she saw this whole situation. So there was a lot of desert, and after this, um, this, this is a huge mental challenge, more than anything. And I think through a lot of experiences I've had in the past, um, I've, I think I've, you remodel your brain to perceive things in a very different way. And as, as sick as I was with the food poisoning, which was really affecting my stomach, and the heat stroke I just had, it was almost like I couldn't, I knew, I knew at the back of my mind, like sometimes you know in the back of your mind at six o'clock you need to go and meet someone for dinner. It, these things were in the back of my mind, but they weren't at the forefront of my mind. I wasn't thinking about the pain. These things weren't really registering. What was at the front of my mind was, what's the quickest way? Very calculated. How do I come over the, overcome these problems? How do I do this? How do I get there as fast as possible? And I was able to quite easily put these things to the back of my mind. And I think that's why so interesting for me to hear Heather share that story because it's a very normal response and I appreciate that when I hear her say it to someone who's nearly died on the ground but that's not where my head was at that place at that particular point in time um, I just I was very my biggest concern was not that I was going to die that I wasn't going to be able to continue so I was feeling sick and I, I continued through the day trying to manage this I wasn't really able to get into an aerodynamic position to help myself that load because my stomach was so uncomfortable. People have asked me afterwards, did you ever think of giving up? Did you ever think of stopping? Um, I think the, the closest I, I came to anything like that, and I would, I would say no, but during the night, not being able to eat food because it was making me feel so ill and so sick, that was when I was, I was questioning, how can I possibly do this? If I can't get fuel into my body, how can I keep my legs turning around? Um, but it was, it was very tender, but I was managing to switch the foods I was eating, consume a lot of calories through my drinks, a lot more calories, and through very watery gels, put a lot less strain on my stomach, and they were, they were easier to consume, but I, I knew I had to drop the intensity, I need to rely more on my fat reserves than actually getting things from carbohydrates, um, but it was going to take a toll on my body and eat through my, my, my reserves. So here we go into the, into the first night, dusk uh, arrives. I had been told by the meteorological office, be aware, this is the time of day when the winds pick up, just before sunset, and they really did. This was really brutal, so I, you know, I, was in a, I was in a bad state. I wasn't feeling as good as I had when I started, um, and the winds started howling around, and it was very, very difficult to push through it. And it was at this point I realized to myself, and the initial strategy had been to not sleep. I think, I think, based on prior experiences, what I've done in the past, what other people have done, I knew that that was possible. But with, with the bouts of illness I've now had, if, normally if you have a heat stroke or you get food poisoning, you would spend a day or two in bed. I didn't have that option. So I thought, I need to rest, I need to recharge. If I can lie down and stop irritating my stomach by pedaling, um, this is going to help. And I thought, this was, this was a very good, good time. As it started to get dark, I rode into the, into the night. Um, I, I said to everyone, I need to lie down for an hour. I need to sleep. Um, I need to recharge my body. Um, so we did that, and I, I carried on 
I carried on through the night. Um, I got down to, to Dukum, which is about halfway down the country. Um, the, the sky was amazing, the Milky Way, there were crabs crawling along the road, I could smell the sea. I was back on the coast. And then in the morning the fog, the fog was really thick, that was very memorable, very exciting. And I felt, I was feeling a lot better. I wasn't feeling 100%. Um, but the temperatures were rising a lot faster than the previous day. And what you can see here is a picture of that morning, um, a couple of the support crew, Randall, Suki, with uh, Mahmoud, one of the, uh, the film crew. Uh, and they've all managed to find some, uh, some proper food. I think a lot of people didn't realize before we left a lot of the crew how remote we were, the places were that we were going to be traveling to. Um, and they kept me in the dark about this, but uh, they ran out of water. Well, they both came very close to running out of water. And at times when I was saying, I need a bucket full of water to put my, my feet in, their mouths were dry, their lips were cracking, and they were going, okay, and they were pouring the last bits of drops of water that they had for themselves to. We have one Pepsi left for three of us. We're going to share that in the car. And can I just point out, these guys stopped for breakfast, and the, uh, the other three of us in the car were following John. They didn't bring us breakfast. There's no one that So they were fed, and we had one Pepsi. Real, real team effort. Yeah, it was, right? But you had your uh, water. Everyone was looking after me, that was all. Awesome. <laughs> um, the, the heat was quite intense. Uh, Heather was doing a very good job. When she wasn't on, in um, her role of race official, she was very good at um, taking responsibility for some of the other tasks that needed doing and making sure that I didn't burn because I would have neglected that. And she was covering me in suntan cream. Um, you see, I'm not, not feeling particularly good at that point. Having, I'm, and I'm, I'm having to have a lot more rests than I planned. Just, just lying down, sitting down, just to rest my stomach. Um, but I knew after the first day, I was a little bit behind. Certainly wasn't on for the fast schedule I looked at, but the, the, the goal was to get under two days, and I knew that I was actually hadn't even quite reached halfway after day one. So the second day was going to be a tough, tough push because I needed to move faster than, than the next day, um, and I was still having to have these these stops and these rests. And I, I went up to the 11 o'clock in the morning and the temperature reached the same temperature as the peak temperature from the day before. And it, it continued to climb. And I saw 38, 37 degrees on the second day out in the desert. Way, way hotter than we'd anticipated for. So I stopped and I said to the crew, I said, right, I can't afford to lose these hours in the middle of the day. I need to keep pushing through. There's only one way we can do this. I'm gonna pedal for 30 minutes. I'm gonna keep the intensity low and then you're gonna get me on the ground, you're gonna cover me in wet towels and ice for 10 minutes, cool me down, cool my, cool my core temperature down because we can't afford to have what happened the day before happen again, uh, and then I'm gonna repeat that, I'm gonna repeat that through the four hottest hours of the day. And um, Chris, one of the helpers, she, was, um, she said afterwards, she was very happy to hear me say that because for one thing, she could see my brain was working properly uh, and I was, I was thinking things through and we had a strategy so that the same thing wouldn't happen. Um, here's a picture of Omar, who um, he's with owns Prismic, Prismic Media. They were doing a great job of, of capturing capturing everything. Um, and just after one of my stops here, he's, he's asking me questions and filming me before I get back on the road. Um, we've got this, this constant presence from them. So here's a map, again, that 3D map of Salala. And 
this is the main motorway, if you can call it that, through the, through the country. That's a thousand kilometers, but there was no way I was going to cycle down that. I, don't, I think it's illegal and I think it's, it's a death trap. Whether you're in a car or however you travel down there, there are so many fatalities. I had to stay away from that. And that's one of the reasons we, we stuck closer to the coast. So I came in on this road here, and this comes through the oil fields um, towards Salala, through um, Marmol and the Nimmer oil fields. And the, the landscape really changed. When I reached there, I reached there, I knew I had 300 kilometers on one road remaining. And I remember Omar, who had just shown you, going, saying to me um, before that, he's like, you're doing so well. You've nearly finished. You're nearly there. He's like, you've only got 400 kilometers to go. I said, Omar, have you ever tried cycling 400 kilometers? <laughs> this, this bit was, was quite bleak. Um, dark, I seem to remember dark oranges and, and reds because we were there later in the day and these big metal, black metal, uh, metal nodding donkeys that, that pull the oil out of the ground. Lots and lots of those. And it wasn't a particularly nice road. The roads we'd been on up until then had a nice shoulder. There was plenty of space. You could get away from the traffic. But this, this really didn't. Um, but I didn't have a choice. It was a, it was a straight road that went most of the way there now. Um, and I had, this is where I had to make up the ground. So you know, I was really pushing on. Um, it got dark, and before we, before we got to this point, this is Salala, before we got to this point, we don't have many photos of it, and unfortunately, the film crew were so panicked by what happened with about eight hours to go that they didn't even capture it, but um, the road deteriorated, and I caught at quite high speed, I hit some, some big cracks and potholes in the road, and I came crashing, crashing off my bike, and this nice skin suit that I had made up, you can see it better if I show you the back of it. It's got, it's got lots of holes in it now. Um, and the, the hip, I hit my hip quite, quite hard here. Um, and they all match up nicely with where I've got holes in my arms and my legs now. Um, so I hit, I hit the deck quite hard and I picked myself up. Everyone stopped, people came running. Um, there were no bones poking out, so again, you know the adrenaline, you don't, you don't feel the pain. Okay, I can carry on. Um, um, there was a car that came tearing towards us, lights on, and um, a very excited voice yelling out the window, and it was Medina. <laughs> she'd seen me at the start, and then she'd flown all the way down to Salada to, um, to come and see me finish. And uh, she'd, been, she'd been driven out, and they found us on the road, and she joined the convoy, and... At this point, I was wearing warm clothes because it was cold in the middle of the night, and she grabbed my arms and squeezed me and said, you've nearly done it, you've done it. And she grabbed all my cuts that she couldn't see, and the, uh, the support team just winced, and I, I tried to uh, fight my tongue. <laughs> Thanks for being um, And that, that was also the point where we found a petrol station, and I said, we have to stop here because I felt so sorry for all the support crew, the fact they hadn't managed to find coffee for how long? Oh, two days. <laughs> no coffee for two days. And then we... So then we get onto this final road that leads in, into Salala, and this is where a bulk of the climbing happens. We had, throughout the day, been rising from sea level to 700 meters, but we had to go over 900 meters to cross the Dofar Mountains into Salala. Um, and they kicked up quite hard. Um, but it was, it was really exciting because I'd always wanted to cycle down there and never been over those roads. Um, 
and I had the cars by me, and Heather's trying to entertain me with fun facts, which I think at one point I just told her to be quiet, because I was... <laughs> Um, but I, w I, was, I was awake, I was wide awake, I knew I was close, the adrenaline was definitely there, and I, was, I was moving. And what was exciting is we got to the top of the, um, the mountain and Medina kept saying to me, you have no idea how many people are watching this, how many people are following this, how many people you've inspired. And I just thought, oh yeah, 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 yeah. there's ten people in Moscow. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and then all these Omanis began to appear on the top of the mountain, they'd driven out and it was probably about four o'clock in the morning. And uh, they were cheering me on, they were beeping their horns, they were, who are these people? I don't know these people. And um, Medina said, they've all come out for you. And the, the word had got out, and I was, I was delighted to hear, I was, I was shocked, overwhelmed to hear that so many people had been inspired, and all these Omanis were so excited about what I was doing in their country. Yeah, there were lots of kids out, lots of kids out. Um, so we, we crossed, I think my stomach was really troubling me, I had, to, I had to, even though I was close, I had to stop again just for a few minutes, sit down. Um, and we crossed the mountain, there was a nice fast descent down into Salada, I think. Um, they were a bit surprised in the cars how quickly I was, I was descending down the mountain. And, and then we got into Salada and uh, then the welcome party appeared. And there were lots more people, the people who had been on the top of the mountain came down and there were lots of kids. And, this was a, a, a stupid time of day. Um, everyone's fast asleep, but all these people have come out to, to welcome me in, and um, there was a big celebration, and they were, uh, you know, confetti going everywhere, and uh, the film crew was there, and the media, and it was, it was amazing. And I was in Salada, I'd been there before, I'd driven down there before, but the fact that I had just, just cycled there was, was unbelievable. I'd, I'd actually arrived, been in desert for days, and, and there it was, we'd, we'd arrived. Um, so there I am holding my bike up in the air. This is, this is my spare bike. I switched bikes after the, uh, the crash. Again, it's the road bike, so it, it, was, it was better suited to climbing the mountains. Um, but that wasn't it. That wasn't the finish. We wanted to finish the palace, and they weren't allowed to film there, so they, they had the welcome party um, a few kilometers before, before we arrived. The location we had for the palace was, was wrong, which was a bit frustrating. And then some, some Omanis said, oh no, we'll show you where it is. We followed the car. And we did get to the palace uh, eventually, and we got there in 47 hours and 21 minutes, so 39 minutes inside the time that we, we set ourselves to go. Um, and I, I felt very proud because the British Embassy had um, lent Medina a big Union Jack flag that we had uh, draped around us, and I had draped around me in front of the gates. And I got my photos with all of my, my helpers, my support crew, and all these people who'd come along. Um, and, you know, we've done it. We've, all, these, all this preparation I told you about, all these weeks and these months of planning, and um, it had happened. And I think for me, the most exciting part was hearing how much money I'd raised for the charity that I wanted to raise it for, um, and how much of an impact it's had on had on people in, in northern Iraq. Uh, I had to be, I had to, it, that again was a, a big part of the preparation and we found a lot of red tape in Oman. I had to be very careful because I'm not allowed to raise money here, fundraise here, um, for, for, unless you get permission. And we, we seem to be going around in circles with people in the government trying to get permission for this. If you wanted to raise money for a charity in Oman, then it would have been much, much easier. But I'm really glad I stuck with my guns and I've got some friends who work 
um, in northern Iraq with the um, Yazidi people. And we raised £4,000, which put, has put lights into nearly 400 people's homes who've not had lighting for seven years. And that's what it was all about. Um, and I think I could have raised four times the amount of money and could have given it to a lot of charities and it would have had a fraction of the impact of the money it raised. Um, we had to be careful that we didn't ask people, people for money in Omar. So I, I would tell people, please look at my Just Giving page, look at it, you know, if you want to know why I'm doing this. Um, no money was going directly through my hands. Um, and it was, it's a registered, reputable N NGO, non-government organization. Um, they are registered with Just Giving. So the money, if people wanted to donate, then it would go through the website. So we were, we were trying to cover our backs like that and, and not do anything that broke any laws in Omar. Um, but it, it, obviously it did hinder, ham, hamper the, um, the, the fundraising in the country. But at the end of the day, I think, I think it was a really, really great place to, to send the money. And I know that my friends are out there at the moment distributing these lights to people. And I've, I've seen some wonderful pictures of how happy these people are to get these really high quality solar lights they can charge during the day and then put into their, their homes and, and then have light for another half of the day. So that, for me, that was what it was all about. And that's why I came up with this idea in the first place. It, the writing itself was a publicity stunt. Yeah, it was, it was something I knew I could do, and I think people could be inspired by it, but um, that was the goal for me, and that's, that's what's made me so happy about the whole thing. So thank you very much for listening to what I've had to say, and I want to... Lesson. Um, 
I think I took a, I think I took a lot of lessons and applied a lot of lessons that I learned in the past. A lot of things I've learned from races I've done, but also cycling around the world. Um, I think I have to put my head into the right place. I think these are things I've learned in the past that were essential. Um, the motivational side of it. Also, at times, to remind myself not to look at the clock and just enjoy and appreciate the scenery. Oman is a beautiful country and even the deserts, it's not just sand, it changes a lot. And to watch it roll by and see the camels and it's very different to the area here around Muscat and the, the Haja Mountains. Um, that was very exciting to see. Um, I, I think I loved the support. I haven't really talked about the other people who came out to the side of the road. Um, when I set off through Muscat, there were, there were all these people coming outside the road cheering me on photographing me for a good couple of hours and then even further beyond that and then I was just my heart was warmed by all these people I'd never met before all these Omanis who who just loved what I was doing in their country and they come to show me show me that um, and I just I think it reinforces I'm not sure learning but it, it reminds me how wonderful people can be um, all the people who were supporting me in my crew but just all the people who who were at the side of the road shouting at me and, and everyone who was cheering me on on their phones and, and everywhere. It was, uh, people are wonderful. Have you got any ideas for your next challenge? You know, there, there was, um, there's been a race in Oman just recently called Biking Man Oman. Um, and I, I went to meet these guys when they finished the race. It was a thousand kilometer self-supported race. Um, and I think going and meeting with them was, was a very dangerous thing for me to do because they started to egg me on for, um, having a crack at the round the world cycling record and a few other things and um, I think I left them that evening going, yeah I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that and, um, yeah we'll see, we'll see I think, like I said earlier on when you do a few things like this people start to believe in you and if you want to tackle some of the bigger challenges you, there's no way you can do this on your own there's no way I could have done that on my own it was, it's not one person's record this was all ten of us who were out there on the road so to, to attempt something bigger, whether it's around the world or whatever it is, then um, I need sponsors, I need support for, for that kind of thing. So we'll see what happens. But um, a, lot of, a lot of very positive things, a lot of very positive meetings and things have happened because of this and are still happening. So um, watch this space. Are you ready for an adventure? We thought so. We present to you the first online adventure platform in the world. You be cool. Now you can book desert camping, hiking or diving at the click of a button. If you need a cool adventure, think ubcool. For more information, check ub-cool.com. This has been a ubcool talk. You can catch us every other Wednesday of the month with an inspirational talk of famous adventures. Thank you for listening. We will catch you next time, explorer.